listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science, and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is a postdoctoral fellow in psychology at Princeton University. Her research focuses on religious and scientific cognition and what psychological roles they serve. She studied childhood development across the world and cultures, and her work serves as an important check against a Western-centric view of how humans think about God and science. Here to unpack all of what that means is our guest, Dr. Telly Davudi. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. And thank you for having me today. I'm very happy to talk about some of the things that interest me. Yeah, I was just uh, looking through some of the work that you have published and was really, I I put that little bit in the intro about serving as a check against Western-centric views, because it seems like that's a major theme that runs through a a lot of the work that you've done of comparing what is somewhat what we might call conventional wisdom in in Western scholarship against what, say, children in, in Iran or in China are in, in the way that they develop. Um, now, you are uh, you were born in Iran, correct? That's right. Yes, I was. Okay. And how long have you lived in the States? So when I was 12, we moved with my family from Iran to Germany. And we lived there for about three years. So I went to middle school in Germany, in Munich. And then we moved to the U.S. when I was 15. And it's been now, how many years? About, so that was 2001. That's 19 years? That seems right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lot of years. (laughs) Time is imaginary during a pandemic. So who knows? It really is. (laughs) Wow. Okay. So you've had your developmental years um, in Iran and then the very traumatic middle school years that we all go through in Germany and then the United States after that. So you already just have a brain that thinks in internationally and cross-culturally. That must be such an asset in the field that you're in. Yeah, I would like to think so. I would like to think that I think internationally. Um And actually, the experiences I have had living in these different cultures have really pushed me to look at cognition across cultures when I started this PhD. I think a lot of the things that I learned about struck me as very culture dependent. And so one of the things and I actually it really helped that I started um, by joining a lab or working with someone who was who was already doing cross-cultural work. And so that just was very interesting to me to think about the experiences that I have had and some of the ways that the way we think, the way children learn um, varies across different cultures. So what had initially drawn you into psychology? So I was actually, I did my undergrad at UCLA in philosophy and uh, I really liked philosophy And I applied for graduate programs in philosophy. I got into a graduate program at Brown and started my PhD in philosophy. And that was really cool and I really enjoyed it. 
But then after a while, I started thinking about a number of things, including the job market in philosophy, <laughs> which now, I mean, ended up being not much better in psychology, especially this year with the pandemic. <laughs> but basically, um, I thought about doing something a little bit different, something that maybe involves a little bit more uh, interactions with people. And it really helped to have that background in philosophy. But then I switched gears and started to look into psychology and developmental psychology specifically, because something else that I've always been interested in was working with kids, talking to kids <laughs> and just figuring out how they think and how they learn things. So I started doing um, research assistant position uh, one summer at a developmental psychology lab at Harvard, where the person I was working with was already doing um, cross-cultural work. He ended up being my PhD advisor later on. And um, yeah, and then I applied for PhD programs. And the more I engaged with research and specifically cross-cultural research with children, the more I realized that this is really something that I enjoy. And it's been really great so far, uh, putting the job market thing aside. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're talking to a pastor with an undergrad in ancient languages, so... <laughs> <laughs> so you probably know what I'm talking about. I'm with about. you. I'm with you. Job markets don't look great. <laughs> but you do what you love, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. That has definitely been the case. <laughs> So one of the things that I was in, in looking at the the publications uh, with that you have done, one of the ones that jumped out to me was a 2015 paper entitled Distinguishing Between Realistic and Fantastical Figures in Iran. And just reading the abstract, um, I was struck by um, this, this study in which you are and you can correct me if I'm wrong, since, you know, you've read it, uh, <laughs> in which uh, you show that children who are taught religious stories are more likely to believe that fictional stories also are factual and that this is not just an American um, phenomenon, but also is evident in Iran as well. So maybe has something a bit more developmental in, in, a, in a person that when we teach children religious and supernatural stories about a God that they can't see then they're more likely to then when they hear say folk folklore and whatnot to assume that those things are true and this uh, right now we're recording it's november 20th but when this episode is released i think it will be january i don't have my calendar in front of me um and so we will have just gone through the christmas season which is mm -hmm. kind of a you know kind of a big deal in the united states um but i know a lot of Christians who have this moral quandary about teaching their kids about Jesus and Santa Claus at the same time, and then as they grow up telling them that one of these things was just a story that we told you was real. But <laughs> trust us, the other one is totally factual. Um, are we messing our kids up by doing that? <laughs> That's really interesting. I hadn't thought of that, but I think it's very relevant here. The idea with that paper is, so my co-authors had shown in the U.S. that kids who go to religious schools in the U.S. tend to think of fantastical figures as more real compared to kids who had a secular education. 
And we saw the same patterns in Iran as we had seen with the kids in religious schools in the U.S. And our interpretation is that children who are exposed to religious stories and importantly stories of miracles where, say, regular physical laws are violated um, might develop a more flexible or broader understanding of causality. And that flexible understanding might then, in other situations where they're introduced to fantastical figures, um, push them to think that maybe these things can also be real. And so in a way, to the question of, you know, what are we doing to our kids? Um, in a way, it's not really a problem, right? It's just, I mean, if you think of it as a broad or flexible understanding of causality that is also very sensitive to the testimony of adults around, adults in the community. It's it's easy to then balance these things together. So you have your child growing up in a religious community and you have a somewhat flexible understanding of causality or causal regulations, but then you hear stories that tell you, well, you know, sometimes these can be violated and they have been violated in some cases, but probably in all all of those cases, there has been some kind of divine intervention or something different from our normal circumstances. So you put these two things together and you figure, okay, uh, sometimes these things can happen, but those are very special cases and under very specific circumstances where there is some kind of a divine uh, intervention or divine power involved. And in fact, in a more recent study we did in Iran and in the U.S., we presented kids with religious stories um, that are religious in the sense that God is doing something. God is sort of the mechanism um, to, to get something done as well as actual stories from the Bible in the U.S. and from the uh, Quran in Iran, as well as stories that are real. Basically, there is the mechanism is um, real in the sense that the mechanism is uh, something that doesn't defy any causal regularities. And what we saw is that um, in the religious, so in a, in a lot of the religious cases where a character, say, is doing something or getting something done with the help of God, but the character is an everyday individual. Children, especially in Iran, say things like, well, this isn't possible because not everyone can do this. So, for example, we had a story of um, one of the miracles that I think Moses, so kids, kids in Iran are familiar with uh, mm-hmm. some of the miracle stories. And let's say we were telling them the miracle story of Moses. And I don't know which one that is. Is that the uh, the stick turning into a snake? Yes, that was Moses. Okay, okay. So that's that's one example. And we tell them, well, this everyday guy Mo did something <laughs> like that. <laughs> and what they say is, well, this isn't real, or Mo isn't real because one can turn a stick into a snake, but not anyone. It, it this is Moses's story. Uh, And so they recognize that there are special cases or specific circumstances in which some causal laws might be violated, but those are very special and they are about specifically the miracle stories that they have heard. Okay. Does that, have you found that 
kids who were raised with this sort of uh, ability to accept things that they can't see and taste and feel, are they more likely to believe in things like germs and viruses and wearing a mask yeah. is important because of invisible viruses? Yeah, so actually that is one of the main themes of my research, to look at the relationship between understanding science or learning about science growing up and learning about religion or understanding religion. And what we see is that there is a relationship there, especially among adults, when we look uh, among U.S. samples, but not the Iranian samples. So if you're comparing the two countries. And there we think that with my co-authors, when, when we think about these patterns, one thing that could be going on is that in the U.S., science and religion are very much polarized and they are presented to the public um, as two domains that are always in conflict. If you have one, if you believe one, um, it's very difficult to then believe in the other. I think that's the common discourse. Whereas in Iran, although it's a very religious society, this conflict is not really found in the way that the two domains are talked about. And religion plays a very important role in people's lives, um, in every aspect of people's lives, including politics. But so does science. And there really is no conflict that um, sort of dominates the discourse about the two domains. And so in Iran, we see high acceptance of religion and religious ideas, religious beliefs, religious invisible entities, but also very high acceptance of scientific unobservables like germs um, and oxygen. And wearing a mask might be a little bit different. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how people are um, doing with that right now in Iran, but there are other cultural aspects that I think will go into that, such as just taking it easy or, you know, a lot of other differences, I think, play into that. But but in the U.S., even that is just a matter of politics and conflict and polarization. Um, and what we see in the U.S. when we look at that relationship between science and religion is that the very religious, um, they show very high confidence in um, religious ideas or the existence of religious unobservables. But... That uh, then is correlated negatively with acceptance of science. So the more religious they are, the, the less they believe in scientific unobservables um, like germs or climate change. So first of all, I find that phrase religious unobservables and scientific unobservables really helpful. And I wrote it down because I'm going to use that. I really appreciate that. I was having this conversation earlier today with a friend of mine who is um, a leader at her church and also a chaplain in the local hospital. And she's trying to convince her church to um, that now is the time to go back to virtual worship services. And she's like, I don't know how to explain to people the seriousness of this when I literally watch people die from it all the time. And it's because it's it's unobserved. It's not mm -hmm. something that they see. And so they have a hard time accepting the gravity based on what somebody else says. Yeah. And actually, it's really interesting. There are so, so many parallels between religious unobservables and scientific unobservables. And especially when you think of children 
children growing up learn about these unobservables regardless to some extent of the domain, right? So they learn about germs and oxygen, but they also learn about God. And actually this was one of the main questions that we were interested in with my, with my um, colleagues. How do they learn about these unobservables and are they different, if at all, in the child's mind? Are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so I think it depends very much on the, again, the testimony of adults around them and the community that they live in. We have shown that, for example, in a um, minority religious community in China, um, children, the way they reason about these unobservables in the domain of religion is they cite the sources from which they have heard about these unobservables um, more often than they do anything else to justify their belief in these things. Whereas in the U.S. and in Iran, when you ask children whose religious beliefs represent the majority beliefs, they don't really feel the need to cite sources. Um, and what they do is they sort of just give general descriptions of what these things are. When you ask them about how do you know that God exists, they talk about God rather than say something like, well, my um, teacher at Sunday school has told me about what, about God, and that's how I know God exists. And so, yes, depending on cu the cultural surroundings and the testimony of adults around them and the bigger um, context that children are living in, these two can't, the way they think about these two kinds of things can be different. Hmm. That's really helpful, too. I was very surprised when I started talking with uh, rabbis and learned that in their seminaries, they have to take classes on the New Testament and how to talk to Christians. And we never had any kind of instruction in our seminary about how to talk with non-Christians other than how to evangelize to them. <laughs> <laughs> That's really interesting. That ties back to this idea of who is the majority and who's the minority, right? Yeah. And so being in the minority, you then just from that position are forced to validate your existence because in the majority, it it's validated by the being majority. So you're more, uh, you've already done some of that work in identifying where your beliefs come from. This is actually when I was uh, a seminary professor, I taught a uh, uh, critical thinking in theology class. And one of the main things that I, my my goal was to help the students to deconstruct their belief systems. <clears throat> we, we would, we would diagram an argument. And the first argument I would use is the old uh, Sunday school nursery rhyme. Jesus loves me. This I know for the Bible tells me so. And they would have to take it apart piece by piece. And when we get to the bottom of it and we're at for the Bible tells me so, and I'm asking them to um, explain why the Bible is a trustworthy source and it, you, the interpretation of it that would lead you to say that Jesus loves me. And I, people closed up. They weren't used to having to dig deeply into that. It was just something that they had always accepted. It had almost like become a foundational part of their development when they were young and everything else in their life was built on it. And so then to question or to even interrogate that 
that established fact in their mind was to undo their entire lives. Is, that is really interesting. And I imagine that's probably just a problem with majority religions. Like, hmm. that is just something about being a Christian in America. Right, yeah, I think so. I, it's just about not questioning those foundational elements of your belief system because you haven't really, uh, there, there has never been a need to question the beliefs, right? Because you're part of the majority and you always fit in, in a sense. Whereas, uh, and I've, I have, I think I haven't been part of the minority group, well, although in Iran, so I'm in, I'm from a very non-religious family and I guess I'm, I was the minority in Iran in a sense because every the, the society at large, I don't want to say everyone is religious because a lot of people are not, but at large, the society is religious. Um, and even if you're not, you don't really talk about it publicly. And so, yes, I do think that one thing that I remember is just not just being very sort of secretive about what we believe in and not praying, for example, or so there are definitely differences in the way you think about your beliefs and in the way you express those beliefs, depending on whether you're from the majority or the minority. Um, but something that I wanted to ask you, it was really interesting what you were saying. And I wonder, what are some of the things that if the students came up with any answers when you asked them, how do you know that the Bible is a trust, trusting source? What are some explanations they came up with? I thought I was asking the questions today. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, you can answer this later, but it's just very interesting. No, no. So we break it down in this uh, this model, the um, which is escaping me, um, in which um, you know Jesus loves me. This I know is the claim of the sentence, um, and for the Bible tells me so. That's the the grounds of it. And the, the warrant that supports that is that the Bible is trustworthy um, or that, you know, because the Bible doesn't say anything, but we interpret through the words that exist in it. Um, so that your interpretation of the Bible is a trustworthy source of truth needs to be the, uh, that needs to be affirmed before you can make this claim that the mm -hmm. Bible says Jesus loves me. So I'd ask people, why do you believe that your interpretation of what the Bible affirms is correct? And it was a uh, Baptist seminary. Most of the people in my class were already pastors or or adults at that point. We're like second career adults. Um, so I'm asking them to interrogate beliefs that have been very cemented. And I think for a lot of folks, it just came down to because it's what I believe, hmm. and that's that's just it. It's because I believe that God gave us this book, and it's trustworthy. And I'd say, well, why do you why do you believe in this God? Um, and sometimes they'd get really frustrated because then they would say something like, "Well, because you know I meet this God through Scripture," and I'd say, "But." But then do you see how that's validating itself, that God is true because the Bible says God is true, and the God is because the Bible is because – and that's kind of circular. And we realize that at the bottom of it all, there's not – the bottom of, of religious faith, there is not fact. Mm -hmm, that's and, so interesting. And a lot of us went to school to find the fact 
that made every other religious leader seem so confident. And when we got there, we realized that it was still all just faith, and then all of the doctrines are built on some notion of faith. And so at the very core of it all is some experience of the ineffable and a leap of faith that you're saying, this tradition is the one that I'm going to I'm going to be a part of. And when you say it like that and you remove the nice religiosity and the religious language and the inclusion language and all of that, it seems very artificial and not very compelling to folks. And so we don't often talk like that. It's so interesting to hear this from you, a pastor, right? You said you're a pastor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Very interesting to hear this from a pastor, because you might think that this is the sort of argument that, for example, a militant atheist would like to have against religion, right? Whereas maybe from the perspective that you're talking about, you don't get to facts when you go this route, um, but that's okay, right? You don't, maybe, maybe in a sense, you don't need facts if you want to reaffirm your faith or if you if as as a religious person who has who has religious beliefs maybe you don't need fact and i'm really interested in this because in some of the work i'm doing now as a postdoc at princeton this is exactly the the kind of thing that we're asking we're basically interested in the psychological role and maybe this is different from what you're saying but you can you can tell me if it is we're, we're interested in the psychological roles that scientific and religious explanations might play for people. And in a sense, some of the data that we have has shown that religious explanations for difficult questions in life, um, such as what happens after I die or uh, how did the universe come to exist, religious explanations might really... Um, in a very, um, th they might be a very good fit for non-epistemic needs, like the need to have a community or uh, the need to reduce ang existential anxiety or um, the need to deal with a lot of moral problems that we might have, moral dilemmas that we might have. Whereas if you are think about a scientific explanation to the same question, it might be uh, more appropriate for specific epistemic needs, like I need to see evidence or I need, I need to talk based on facts or I need to be able to verify this. And I wonder, this is from our perspective, and I wonder if religious people themselves think of their beliefs this way sometimes, that it's okay if there are no facts because it's doing something for me and you know, what it's doing for me is really valuable. And uh, I don't need to give it up just because, you know, there are no facts or just because the evidence that I feel like I have for these beliefs might be a different kind of evidence uh, than the evidence I take for my scientific beliefs, for example. Is that, is that, does that relate to what you were saying? Or is that how you think about it as well? Yeah, well, I think that this this will vary depending on how broadly the person has experienced others. Um, for people who have stayed within their general religious sphere, 
and their general uh, um, geographic location, and they haven't really seen much of the outside world, uh, it works. You know, this is the Bible tells me so. It's what I believe, and it's always worked. And so I have no need to question it. And so we don't. And any and so when you somebody on the outside questions it or pokes and prods at it, then it's seen as an attack, and you get that fight or flight, and you are not thinking straight anymore. And we're not in thinking logically anyway. But for other people who have, you know, say, gone away to college or have grown up on the internet, I've seen um, that there are plenty of other religious worldviews that provide some very real meaning to huge swaths of people that look nothing like mine. You have to, if you're still going to hold on to your religious beliefs in light of that evidence of somebody else having, like somebody else having a religious experience that is different from yours, that is authentic, you have to come up with some kind of a, a new framework for understanding your faith, your God, the divine itself, and the other. And some people, their framework is those people are being lied to by demons, which feels like a very easy answer that's mm -hmm. uh, very dismissive and colonial. Uh, but otherwise, you, you kind of have to start to broaden, right, and expand a bit. I think the more a person experiences the other, the more almost mystical their faith becomes. It becomes mm -hmm. a lot more about the things I don't know and that I'm okay with not knowing the exactness of these things. That's been my experience anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting to hear. It's very helpful for me working. It's, it's helpful to have these conversations and to hear the perspective of a pastor, given that I'm working on these things. And I feel like I lack the... I lack a deep understanding of the actual experience of the religious experience and the data shows one thing, but, and, and, you know, we can talk about the patterns that are shown by the data, but it's really interesting and valuable to hear about the experience. So you're, you're, you're saying that in, you're trying to understand religious experience in others when it's not something that has been an important part of your own life, the experiential aspect of religion. Yes. Yes. Interesting. So then what leads you to want to study religion if it's not if it's not been a personal part of your life? So because I was raised in a very religious society, but uh, it, within a non-religious family, it was always interesting to me to think of, you know, how is it that growing up um, and there are a lot of, so within the Iranian context, there are a lot of families where the child grows up in a religious family, but then is very non-religious later on, or a lot of uh, scientists who end up seeing uh, religious motifs in their work, in science. So these interactions have always been really uh, interesting to me. And again, my immediate family was non-religious, but the, the community, the, the society that I was raised in was very religious. And the other thing that was very interesting to me was how to be an atheist, but not 
see this conflicting relationship between science and religion and how to be an atheist, but have a lot of religious friends and understand their perspective and respect where they come from and uh, just, you know, live peacefully with others who don't have your beliefs or, or believe in a God that you don't believe in. And it seemed to me when I when we came to the U.S., it seemed to me like in the U.S., it's a little bit difficult to have that harmony or to understand each other. Maybe again, going back to the political context and how, especially in recent years, it's uh, religion and science or lack of religion are very much polarized. Um, it seemed to me like in Iran, it's so much easier, although not publicly. So again, publicly, you can't really say that you don't you don't have a religion or that you don't pray. But privately, people always have these discussions and you can be someone who has never believed in uh, religion, but you can be best friends with someone who is very much religious. And this harmony, I, because I had seen it growing up, is something that's very interesting to me. And I think this is the main reason I wanted I, I want to study the relationship between religion and, and non-religion uh, or religion and science. So uh, you're not going to offend me by the answer, but do you think that um, children who are raised in non-religious households are better equipped to uh, move through the world these days than kids who were born in religious households? Is there a difference? I don't think that's one basically i don't think you can talk about this one factor and how it relates to whether or not you you go through the world uh as an equipped person because i think there are so many other factors that play a role here i don't think that this one factor makes any difference really um because again i've seen a lot of my own friends who have moved from iran when they were much older than me um, and are doing really great, adjusting to a different society. Um, they are very comfortable living in the U.S. now. And so I have these examples. And I think that, again, there's so many different things that go into this question of who is going to be more easily adjusting to different situations. Because, yeah, you know, you read those... Uh popular studies that show up all the time in Facebook feeds of like science shows that and you know <laughs> it's not actually it's it's you know one study done out of somewhere whatever that but I keep mm -hmm. seeing these that uh, children of non-religious households tend to be more empathetic tend to be um, kinder towards others with the um, underlying assumption being that children born to religious households have a firmer sense of tribe and otherness mm. than than children who don't because there's kind of a, a, a baked in us versus them mentality um, has that but at the same time sorry go ahead. No, no no I was just gonna ask if that ha if that plays out at all in the wider research so I feel like with a lot of these um conclusions based on the data, it could go either way. <laughs> and I feel like there are also a lot of studies that show children growing up in religious families are more empathetic and they share more with others. Um, and they're less likely to cheat on these sort of 
experimental tasks. Um, so I, <laughs> I did always think that God was going to tell my teacher that I had cheated because <laughs> yeah, I went right? to Christian schools and I was really like, the Holy Spirit's going to tell him I can't cheat because I'm going to get caught. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if God is always watching, it, it only makes sense, right, to cheat less. <laughs> and, and there's actually data showing the, some of these things. And so it's very difficult to trust the data in a lot of these cases. Um, and I feel like you need to know so many more details about what was done, how it was done, where it was done. Um, and then does it replicate a thousand times or not? Does it replicate in different contexts, different cultures? Um, and so that's that's one thing I wanted to say. And then there was something else that I wanted to say that I don't remember now. <laughs> um when you were talking about data. Oh, oh yeah. And so this idea of um, tribalism and whether growing up in a religious community or religious family makes you more tribal. I feel like there are so many things that can make you sort of think that you belong to a specific tribe. And um, and it's it really all depends on how it's presented, right? So religion is one of those things that can make you feel like this is my tribe, but it's also one of those things that can make you look beyond those boundaries, right? So, and I don't know the exact sort of quotes, but I know there are so many quotes from the Quran and from the Bible that tell you to, you know, love everyone, love your neighbor. And uh, you, you, I'm sure you know <laughs> some of these quotes. There's a couple. <laughs> <laughs> but my understanding, and it's very limited, is that it can really do both things. And it all is in how it's presented, how it's interpreted, and uh, what else is going on in uh, in the context in which the child is growing up. And there are many other things that are not like religion in this way and basically can only lead to tribalism, like nationalism, right? Um so I feel like talking about tribalism is just so much more um, worth everyone's time to talk about sort of if, if we're talking about religion, talk about the specific context in which, in which religion can lead to tribalism, but then also talk about all these other things that definitely lead to tribalism. <laughs> <laughs> like being a Patriots fan? <laughs> right. I guess I guess that's very it intense. Too. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that makes me feel a lot better. My wife is also a pastor, so my kids have double church. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be okay. <laughs> They'll be okay or they're gonna need a therapist, or maybe both. I don't know. Oh, but we uh, all we all ended up needing therapists, I feel like. <laughs> That's right. That's another plug. This podcast we love. We love mental health professionals. So if you don't have a therapist, get one, especially now. Mm-hmm. So is there anything that has really surprised you in in your research? Hmm. I guess the the paper that you were talking about was really surprising at first. But that's how it is with research. You go in with a question. And then you find data supporting that question. 
And then you interpret it, you talk about it so much that it's not surprising anymore. <laughs> but if I <laughs> reflect back <laughs> on many years ago, I think it was pretty surprising to think of how um, being exposed to religious stories and stories of miracles might uh, make children think of very obviously fantastical fictional characters as real in some cases as well. Um, but again, thinking about it, it makes sense, right? That that you might think if in some cases the miraculous can happen and causal laws can be violated, especially when you're younger, you might think, well, it might happen in other cases too, until you realize those are very specific circumstances and, uh, you know, they are contained to that context. So I am... I am fascinated by something that you said earlier, that there is not as much of a conflict scene between science and Islam as there is between science and Christianity. Uh, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because on this show, we've mostly just had Christians and Jews and have not had a whole lot of the Muslim worldview. So I'm a very bad representative for <laughs> Muslim worldview, but I did grow up in a very Muslim uh, society. Um, and and I, I want to stress that I don't know if um, it's about Islam versus Christianity so much that it is about the Iranian context and the U.S. context. Okay. Um, and I think that one of the differences that I have observed is, again, that in Iran, religion is very much politicized and it's a it's a political matter. Um, but science isn't. Science is just facts, according to a lot of people. And there are That's so, so many. Yeah. <laughs> I wish that was our story. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in the US, I feel like science, maybe religion is not so much politicized. And I don't know, maybe you can correct me here, but science is very much politicized. Um, and so there are so many Iranian scientists who are deeply religious, deeply uh, Muslim, but are also very accomplished scientists and uh, they're doing great as scientists as well. And I'm pretty sure there are so many American scientists who also have those characteristics, but they're maybe underrepresented in the public discourse about these things. And they're not really heard as much as militant atheists might be heard. Um, and so it might be something about Islam versus Christianity and the, the maybe the the historical context there, but yeah, that's a question for uh, religious scholars, I guess, or historians. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm told that the, and again, uh, maybe I'll get corrected by one of my Jewish friends, but that uh, at the core of Judaism is the the freedom and the encouragement to take things apart and look at them from different angles to interrogate truths and to, you know, turn the gem of Torah, as it were, and see it from a new light. And so that lends itself to studying and accepting science in a way that Western Christianity has not, because early on, Western Christianity got in bed with empire and colonialism, and they kind of became intertwined in, in 
in the higher parts of, of like power in the more visible parts of Christianity. Um, but not, not so much everywhere. I mean, I think there's more heavenly bodies named after Jesuit priests than almost any other group of people. It's like there, we've been doing the work, but <laughs> yeah, the history there is really interesting. And, and I'm sure if, if these differences are reliable, it has to be something in the history and how different these different views, different religious traditions were intertwined with other things like political gains or power dynamics. Well, that is a great segue into my final question, which I've asked all of the fellows, and you can take as much time as you need, which is, uh, what is one thing that you wish everyone knew about the world? Hmm. So I guess knew that everyone knew or that everyone this might be so I'm thinking of something it might be something that everyone knows in a sense but doesn't reflect on or doesn't really think about all the time and it's something that is very perfectly shown by the times we're living in right now with the pandemic and it's one of the first things that I started thinking about maybe every single day when this whole thing started at first. And it's basically how greatly connected the whole world is without us realizing that all the time. And it's it's basically very, um, it's, it's so connected beyond our, um, it's not beyond our imagination, but it's just something that we don't reflect on. And we tend to sometimes in different countries or different cultures feel like we are very different from the rest of the world. And really, nobody is different from the rest of the world. <laughs> Not a single village, as, as we know right now, is um, basically free from what the rest of the world is going through right now. I mean, there, there might be some single villages. <laughs> no, there might be some, some places somewhere um, that don't have even one case. But basically, it just shows us that no one is better or worse. We're basically all prone to the same things. And we're so connected across the whole world, so much more than we know or think about or might want to acknowledge. We're really all very much the same thing. um, And we go through very much the same things. (laughs) So true. (laughs) And that has really become very evident over the past eight months or so. So thank you for that. Um, before we go, uh, would you like to plug your new podcast? Oh, yeah. I just don't know, don't know if you have any <laughs> Persian-speaking listeners. <laughs> well, if we have, we have an international audience. So if we have any Persian-speaking uh, listeners... Yeah, if, if you do have any Persian-speaking listeners, uh, I have a podcast with a friend of mine who is a philosopher. Um, the, the podcast is called Beyond Stories. And we talk about, so every episode, we pick a novel in Persian. And through that novel, we talk about a topic um, such as memories or silence and we talk to, um, so far we've talked to professors who work on these topics. And it's been a, uh, it's been really fun. It's been an interesting experience. Feel free to uh, look it up if you speak Persian. 
or look it up even if you don't speak Persian, but you probably just won't understand what we're talking about. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as we head into another national lockdown, maybe you want to learn Persian and then you'll have a new (laughs) podcast to listen to. If you do learn Persian, definitely, yes. Uh, we would love to have you listen to our podcast. Oh, well, thank you so much, Telly, for being um, here and for talking to me for the past 45 minutes or so. It's been really enlightening. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun to think through some of these questions with you. Thank you for having me. 